John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we read, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it, that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee or in the Galilee. We now come to a new chapter in John's Gospel. And just very briefly, remember in chapter 6, It moved from signs to sermon to sifting. Remember, the word of God revealed the person of God. There was a separation that took place between right and wrong, um, good and evil, true and false. And this sifting created not just a, a, a simple disagreement, but a great debate, a great conflict. You know, it's been my experience that most people don't like to fight. Most people don't like to argue. But it's also been my experience that every once in a while, you find someone who loves a good fight. And they love a good argument. For whatever reason, they enjoy it. My granny used to say, never wrestle with a pig. You'll both get all dirty and the pig will love it. And I thought, I know there's wisdom in that statement somewhere. Whether liked or disliked, disagreement inevitably leads to conflict. And the religious leaders, they've seen the signs of Jesus. They've heard the sermon of Jesus. And they've rejected him. Chapter 7 begins with doubt or disbelief on the part of his own family. It will continue with more debate as we continue in the chapter. And then it's going to end with this intense rivalry and this great division. For Jesus, the opposition began with the religious leaders, and then it will continue with his own family. And so how does Jesus deal with mocking and sarcasm and ridicule? And his response gives us clues, insights into how we can best handle those who mock us and scorn us and ridicule us for those who mock Jesus, who mock the Bible, who mock the things of God. Now, I grew up in a world of mockery. In my family, the way we coped with with circumstances is we would fight, argue, and mock each other. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. This isn't some friendly disagreement over non-essential matters. The religious leaders, it says in verse 1, were 
seeking to assassinate Jesus, to kill him. And the reason why is because Jesus exposed their sin. Now, I want you to pause for just a moment, and I want you to think about that. Jesus exposed their sin. Jesus challenges this world. Jesus challenges the principles, the policies, the priorities. And the chapter is basically divided into three sections. The events that take place before this feast. The events that take, which is verses 1 through 10. The events that take place during the feast, which is verses 11 through 36. And then the the events that will take place after the feast, which is... uh, Verses 37 through 52. And when Jesus will eventually show up at the Feast of Tabernacles, he'll once again receive different reactions from different people. Some will believe that Jesus is a good man in verses 11 and 12. Some will believe that he's a deceiver in verse 13. Some will go so far as to bluntly assert that the reason why Jesus has power and insight is because he himself is in league with the devil and he's demonically possessed in verse 20. Some believe that Jesus is an ordinary man in verses 25 through 27. Others suggest that he's a prophet in verse 40. Some say that he's the Messiah in verses 31 through 41. But as you can imagine, in this chapter, you're going to get this rousing discussion concerning the true identity of Jesus. On Friday, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to check my messages, but someone from Fox News called and said that downtown atheists have erected a billboard. And the billboard says, imagine a world where there is no God. And Fox News called me and says, hey, you know what, we just wanted you to to comment on, you know, what do you think of the atheists putting up a billboard that says, imagine a world where there is no God. And I thought, man, I wish I would have had a, a chance to get back with them. Because in truth, it all depends on how you, how you define the, the word religion. Is religion man's attempt to find God? Is, is religion a human discussion concerning the presence or the absence of God? Because according to the atheists, there is no God. Physical matter and energy are the only reality. So where did what's real come from? Well, they don't have an answer. What does it mean to be a human being? Well, we're the product of evolution. What does it mean that humans are basically good or evil? Well, they aren't. They're either good or bad. They're flawed, but they can be corrected. Is it possible to know anything about anything? Well, according to the atheists, yes, but only by the senses and logical deduction. So, again, if we imagine a world without religion, according to the atheists, we can imagine a world where the rise of science is completely retarded. Mass education doesn't exist because that's what Christians gave us. A high regard for human life. There would be no orphanages. There would be no hospitals. There would be no charity. There would be limited representative government. And the elevation of women can be traced to the impact of Jesus on the followers. So imagine a world where women are still in subjugation and slavery. But I didn't get a chance to answer But think about it for just a moment. When Jesus shows up, the whole world is different. What happens when you show up? 
What happens when you show up at work? What happens when you show up at home? What does your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends, what do they think about you? Mr. Christian? Mrs. Christian? Do they think that you're weird or deluded or disturbed? Well, guess what? They thought the same thing about Jesus. Do they mock you? Do they ridicule you? Do they deride you? They may call you ignorant. They may call you brainwashed. They may call you stupid. They may call you deceived. They may call you delusional. But there's one thing. There's one thing that will drive your family and your friends over the edge. And you know what it is? When you love the Lord and you live for the Lord, when you forsake sin and you live a life of visible humility and genuine honesty and unashamed holiness, they will hate you. They will hate you because you're doing exactly what Jesus did. Your purity, your joy, your praise exposes their impurity. And their emptiness. They will mock you. They will despise you. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Guess what? If you do not live godly in Christ Jesus, chances are you're going to be just fine. Because in direct proportion to your willingness to think the thoughts of this world and speak the words of this world and live in complete compliance with this world means that the world is going to love you. So if you are mocked, if you are persecuted, if you are ridiculed, what are you going to do? Curl up in a fetal position and go, Oh, I wish people were nice to me. Well, guess what? Stand up. Do what Jesus did. You know what Jesus did when when he was faced with, with ridicule and mocking? He used it as an opportunity to teach. He used it as an opportunity to remind them that the day of accepting Christ's claim isn't completely over with yet. The day of exposing wickedness in the world isn't completely over with. The time of the full revelation of Jesus Christ is yet to come. If you look at the first verse where it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. You're going to discover something. For the Christian, you are on a different schedule. As a believer in Christ Jesus, you're on God's clock. For the Christian, time can be divided into two broad categories. Guess what they are? The right time. And you don't have to be a theologian to figure this one out. What do you suppose the other one is? The wrong time. If you are a Christian, you are on God's table, God's timetable, God's clock, and God has a perfect and complete timing for everything that he wants to accomplish. And for Jesus, because they were trying to kill him, he holds up, if you will, in Galilee. Now, remember, the religious leaders reacted violently to the message of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus failed to persuade them. The miracles of Jesus failed to convince them. His character and his claims failed to impress them. So what was true for the religious leaders 
was also true for Christ's own family. The teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the claims of Jesus failed to convince his own family. We're not told how long Jesus will remain outside of Judea. Now remember, in the ancient world, Galilee is one province and Judea is another province. The way that you administered justice was different from one province to the next. And so Jesus was more likely to survive in Galilee than in Judea. Bible scholars estimate that he stayed outside some six months to a year and a half, depending on how you read this text. Because in chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus is seen attending Pesach, which is Passover, on the 15th of Nisan, which usually occurred in March or April. And then in chapter 7, he attends Sukkot, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, in verse 10. And that occurred on 22 or 23 Tishri, which is, in our calendar, September or October. And so, again, depending on how you do the math, March, April, May, June, July, August to September, six or seven months. The verb walked, by the way, is in the perfect tense. It denotes a continuous action. The idea is that Jesus walked and continued to walk in the Galilee in spite of the fact that many left him, in spite of the fact that he was a wanted man, in spite of the fact that they were trying to assassinate him. And you've got to understand something that in the ancient world, Galilee was considered less important than Judea. Yet God sent Jesus to minister at the Galilee. Now, that should speak to your heart. A believer should not feel embarrassed or ashamed to minister in areas and circumstances that do not seem significant by this world's standards. Well, what is it that you do? I I pray for and care for my children. Well, that's a tremendous, tremendous privilege. What is your ministry and where has God placed you? Don't be ashamed of of the ministry that God has assigned to you. Remember, when Jesus was in constant danger, he doesn't withdraw from ministry, but he continues to minister. Even though he's in a circumstance where he's under constant threat, he loves people. He serves them. He prays with them and for them. He teaches them. He instructs them. He encourages them. And so no matter where you are in whatever physical or mental or emotional place, of isolation and difficulty, God wants to use you. And by the way, the verb sought means to seek and to keep on seeking. Because the Jews sought, that means they were looking and they continued to look for an opportunity to kill him. Make no mistake about it. Even though Jesus is in the Galilee, that doesn't mean that the religious leaders in Judea have forgotten what he has said and what he claims and the threat that he is to them. He is a threat, make no mistake about it, to the religious institution. Do you want to know why? Because Jesus claims superiority to religion. He claims that you can have a relationship with God through him. That he's the son of God. That he came down from heaven. That he's the bread of life. And that's a huge problem. And by the way, make no mistake about it. You might be hiding out from the devil right now. 
you might be hiding out and you might be saying, I don't want to be so bold and I don't want to be so... What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to be so bold and I don't want to, I don't want to make life miserable for my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, the person that I live with. So, you know what? I am not going to be bold in my Christianity. I'm tired of being called Bible boy. I'm tired of being called Jesus freak. So I'm just going to lay low for a little while. I'm going to just sort of fit in. Have you ever had a a friend or a family member say to you, "I, I had no idea you were a Christian. You seem so normal. Yeah, that's because I'm laying low. But guess what? The devil still hates you. Satan is still out to get you. By the way, remember, why did the Jews seek to kill him? Number one, because he exposed their sin. And number two, because he threatened their religion. Donald Nesia in Leadership Magazine wrote, The natural response when someone confronts us is to deny the sin and to be angry at the accuser. And so when you show up and you live a life committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. People are going to find it offensive. And look what it says in verse 2. Now, the Feast of the Jews, or the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which is Tishri. Now, remember what I said. It's at the end of September, the beginning of October. This was one of the three feasts of obligation. Every adult male who lived within 15 miles of the temple was legally bound and obligated to attend the celebration. So devout Jews from outside the 15-mile boundary would also gladly observe this feast. And the feast lasted eight days. It was also called the in-gathering. And the reason why it was called the in-gathering is because it bore a resemblance to our own communion service. You realize that when we have communion... It represents, remember, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. When we participate in communion, we do it in the remembrance of Jesus. But remember, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He said, do this until my kingdom comes. And so it was with this particular memorial. It was a memorial that the Jews celebrated their redemption from Egypt. It spoke of the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness. But it also spoke of a future kingdom. A kingdom where the kingdom was ruled by the Messiah. Where both Jew and Gentile gathered together. Where God, by God's Messiah, would be both king and lord forever. And so the people would come and they would build Sukkah. Sukkah means huts or booths. These were temporary dwellings that they would made, make of wood or of canvas. And then they would have leaves or palm branches on the roof. And so that when you are in this temporary dwelling place, this booth, through the branches, you could see the stars at night. And you could once again be reminded that your journey on this earth is temporary and temporal. That all of human beings have a beginning and a middle and an end. And it would have been decorated with fall flowers and leaves and fresh fruit and vegetables. And many people would build them on their lawns or their balconies. And and they would sort of uh, 
to have one meal a day in this place. It would, it would be sort of like camping out at home. And they would make a lulav. A lulav was made up of a willow and a palm and a myrtle. And they would tie these branches together and they would point it to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. All four corners, if you will, signifying that God's presence was everywhere. And it was sort of like family camp. It was joy and celebration. It was like a harvest celebration, if I can use an imperfect illustration. It would be like Mardi Gras, where in Mardi Gras, um, you celebrate and you have a big, fat, stinking party. It's called Maldi Gros, Fat Tuesday for a reason, because you indulge yourself knowing that you're going about to enter into 40, year, or 40 days of fasting. And... The Day of Atonement would come four days, and that would be a time of reflection and affliction. And so in verse 3, look what it says. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. Now, on the surface, that sounds not so bad. Well, but why would his family, why would they ask Jesus to go into Judea, particularly when his life was in danger. Imagine someone was trying to kill you. And your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister said, Hey, why don't you go to that place where, where they're trying to kill you? Um, well, because that's a problem. Now, I need to tell you just a couple of things. In a sense, the brothers are making a dare. They're basically saying, look, I dare you to go. You say that you're the bread from heaven. Now think carefully. I want you to think carefully. They have seen the signs that Jesus has performed. They have heard the sermons that Jesus has preached. But they still don't believe that he is truly God's Messiah. Come to the earth to forgive sins. In In a very real sense, I suspect that they might be suggesting that he may or may not be a political Messiah. And, and so the idea is, okay, if you're supposed to be this Mr. Messiah, then why don't you go to the, to the place and, and express yourself? Now, I, I need you to note just a couple of things. First of all, Jesus did have brothers. Some religious traditions insist that Mary remained a virgin um, after the birth of Jesus, that her husband Joseph and her didn't have normal marital relations and that she remained a virgin in perpetuity. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that Mary had other children. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, they say, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so some have suggested, well, he's talking about cousins. But there's a very specific word in the language for cousin. And we're left completely with the, with the implication that, that, that these are real brothers and sisters. The point is, the claims of Jesus embarrassed his family. Are you sometimes an embarrassment to your family? Oh no, the Jesus freak is here. Oh Lord, help us. Oh, are you praying? Oh, here, I'll join you. By the way, James and Jude would come to know the Lord Jesus. 
but it wouldn't be until after his death and his resurrection. And so the two books in the New Testament called James and the other New Testament book called Jude were written by Jesus' half-brothers. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. They thought he was nuts. Members of his own family believed that, well, he didn't have both oars in the water. But shortly thereafter, the family and friends of Jesus would travel a great distance and they would try to bring him home. In Mark chapter 3, verse 31, it says, Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers, they're outside and they're looking for you. But Jesus didn't heed the urgings of his family. He continues to tell the people the truth. So part of the way the family dealt with what they perceived to be Jesus' mental and emotional disability, they challenge him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, you're Mr. Messiah, go. Do miracles. Blow people's mind. His own brothers are suggesting, hey, look, if you're going to do it, do it out in the open. Look at verse 4. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, by the way, the Jewish culture was not a, a culture of secrecy. If you wanted something done, you did it openly. And you did it so that everyone could see it. Secret and secret teaching really was something that was despised. By the way, when people mock you, when people ridicule you, when people make fun of you, they tend to do it in one of two ways. To your face or behind your back. Which do you prefer? Do you like to see the knife coming from the front? Or do you like the surprise of feeling it in the back? Okay, let's have a little show of hands. How many of you, if you're going to be mocked, you want to be mocked to your face? Good job. And how many of you, if you're going to be mocked, would just really rather not know? There's a couple of you. Well, I appreciate your honesty. I fought the urge to mock a former president to his face. You know, when he said to me, I couldn't help but noticing you have really good hair. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. You know, my wife is pretty much out of the running now. Yes, sir, I, I know that. In a way, it's a relief for me. I was feeling very uncomfortable being called the first gentleman. If you know what I mean. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. For, look what it says. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Look at verse 5. You can imagine the strain. The family of Jesus, possibly with the exception of Mary, feel the full pressure, the full weight of Jesus' abnormal behavior. And the family is mocking him. And make no mistake about it, they are unbelievers. First, they treat him with compassionate care, but quickly their compassion becomes amused disrespect, chiding, goading, their disrespect and their teasing 
open and available for the whole world to see. And again, the Greek language gives us a window into the world of Jesus. The text says, for even his brothers did not believe. Believe being in the Greek imperfect tense. This means that there is this persistent unbelief. So what do you do when your family, your friends, they openly doubt you? Your family, your friends, they openly predict your failure. See, here's one of the disadvantages. In their eyes, you're the person that they grew up with. People close to us find it easier to think of us in terms of our past failure and our moments of weakness. And when people think of you in terms of weakness and failure, there's a higher standard. I thought you were supposed to be this Christian. I thought you were supposed to be Mr. Christian. Miss Christian, I thought you were supposed to be this holy person. And so there's mockery. There's embarrassment. There's unbelief. So what do we think? Well, at first, I I want to point something out to you. I have a little sympathy for the brothers and sisters of Jesus. After all, Jesus is claiming to be the source of life. He's claiming to be eternal life. He's claiming to be God's son. He's claiming that he came from heaven. He's already been rejected in the hometown of Nazareth. And the evidence in the Bible seems to indicate that that rejection was pretty intense. And you know you're being rejected when people push you to the side of a cliff and then they attempt to push you over the cliff. Wouldn't you say, wouldn't that be a little clue to you? Hey, uh, you're not happy with me, are you? There was a ridiculous movie that came out many years ago called Throw Mama from the Train. It starred Danny DeVito, and the whole theme of the movie is Danny DeVito hires this person basically to assassinate his mom, but in a humane way. It's one thing when someone tries to throw you off a cliff or stone you or crucify you. And I'm sure that the brothers and sisters of Jesus thought, you know, look, he's our brother. Yes, he's a little. But we don't really want any harm to come to him. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Let me ask you a question. Do you suppose he was perfect morally? I do. Jesus was a perfect brother. Now I want to I want you to imagine growing up with you. I know what some of you are thinking. I know I was almost perfect, that close. I can I was that close. But see, this tells me something that we sometimes overlook. Sometimes we think that if we'll bake brownies or give cookies to the next door neighbor, sometimes we think if we're a perfect husband, if we're a perfect wife, if we're a perfect brother, if we're a perfect sister, if we're perfect, if we're perfect in front of our family, then our family will go, Jesus is Lord, and they'll fall to their knees, and they'll receive him as Lord and Savior. But it's not true, is it? Jesus was perfect to his family. But do you think his perfect behavior towards his family created belief on the part of his family? The answer is no. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that you be a jerk to your family. I'm not suggesting that you be wicked and weird because, well, hey, it's just the way it is. What I am suggesting to you is this. 
that you have a realistic expectation. That people receive or reject Jesus, but don't allow your behavior to be the thing that exacerbates the situation. And look what happens. You consider a more strategic time in verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. So how does Jesus respond to the mocking and to the sarcasm and the unbelief? I want you to pay close attention to the three things. The day of accepting Christ's claim isn't yet come. The day of exposing wickedness and the the exposure of the wickedness to the world has come. And the time for the full revelation of Jesus is yet to come. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Here's what he's saying. I'm not going to be manipulated by your belief or your unbelief. God is in control of Christ's schedule. Is Jesus going to go to Jerusalem? The answer is yes. Is he going to go on their terms or is he going to go on his terms? He's going to go on his terms. God has a plan and God has a purpose from all of eternity. God has orchestrated the birth and the life and the message of Jesus. And he will go to Jerusalem and he will be arrested and he will die. But for the unbeliever, for the make-believer, the shadow of death casts a long shadow. It can come quickly. And unexpectedly, look what it says. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. How do you deal with mockery, sarcasm, ridicule? You remind the person who's ridiculing you. Guess what? You might be ridiculing me today, but you may not have tomorrow. For the unbeliever, for the make-believer, they live in the constant fear that today could be their last day. By the way. Is tomorrow guaranteed to any of us? Is it possible that a a blood vessel could be released from your brain and an aneurysm could cause your heart to stop at any moment? Is it possible that any one of us could walk through those doors, go into the parking lot, leave this service, and you obey all of the the, uh, traffic signals? You obey all of of the driving law and someone kills you even though you did everything right. It is possible. God is in control of Christ's schedule. There will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will come a time when every lip of every creature will say Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father the day is coming the day appointed by God there is a day of destiny and it might not be today for the person who's mocking you or mocking Jesus Jesus turns the mocking the disrespect into something I rarely do an opportunity to teach and look what he says in verse 7 the world cannot hate you But it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. What time is it? It's time for Jesus to point out the wickedness of this world system, the world that stands in opposition to God. He says the world cannot hate you because the mocker, the sarcastic person, the unbeliever, stands in opposition to God. They're cooperating with the things of this world. This world rejects God, and this world rejects the plan of God, and this world rejects the Messiah of God. 
It's trying to point out that the world doesn't love Jesus. The world hates Jesus. This is the time to point out the sin in the world, not seek love with the world. This is the time to point out the hypocrisy, the duplicity, the wickedness of this world, not the pretended goodness of this world. Now is the time to paint a picture that shows the canvas of this world as corrupt. Now is not the time to speculate about a coming utopia. Now is the time to declare the need of the world, not the praise of the world. This world needs to understand that it needs a savior. And the only way that that will happen isn't to cooperate with the world, but to expose it for what it is. The world won't hate you if you love what it loves. And you know what? His own brothers, his own family, at that point were a part of the world. The world opposed to God. The world opposed to the word of God. The the world opposed to the commands of God and the promises of God. People who love this world, people who serve this world, people who approve of its wicked behavior can successfully masquerade. That's why I say this, and and I don't mean this disrespectfully at all. If the people closest to you don't know that you're a Christian... You probably aren't. I'm not saying certainly you aren't. I'm saying probably not. And look what it says in verse 8. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And by the way, the brothers will go to the feast. And guess what it is? It's a religious celebration. Think for a moment. They're willing to leave Christ for religion. Isn't that just the strangest thing? Imagine a group of pro-choice demonstrators who believe that a woman should have the right to kill her child at any point in the term of her pregnancy. Imagine they go to a Christmas celebration. Now, Christians celebrate Christmas is the time when Jesus comes from heaven to the earth. He's born of a virgin, placed in a womb by God for nine months. Does it, does, is there something odd about what I'm saying? That there would be a group of people celebrating destruction of life in the womb at a time when most people should be celebrating The reality that God could become a a man in human flesh. And they're willing to go to a religious celebration and abandon the whole point of the celebration. He says, you go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up, for my time has not yet fully come. By the way, the word time here probably means opportune time. It could be that Jesus is saying, you know what, this isn't the best time. This isn't the most opportune time for me to go. The brothers could go any time, but he couldn't go any time. And in verse 9 it says, when he had said these things to to them, he remained in Galilee. Now a little bit later on he's going to show up at the feast, and we'll talk about that the next time we meet. But I do want to point something out to you. When people are mocking and ridiculing, 
Part of the answer is, guess what? You say to the person who mocks you and sarcastically ridicules you, it's okay for you to say, guess what, gang? clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. There was a song when I was growing up by the Rolling Stones. Some of you know it. Time is on my side. Who knows the rest? Yes, it is. The rest of the song goes, because I got the real love, the kind that you need. You'll come running back. You'll come running back. You'll come running back to me. What a lie! What a lie! Time isn't on your side. Have you seen Keith Richards lately? You just look at him and you go, Brother, time has not been kind to you. You just wonder how he manages to stay alive. Time isn't on your side. They should have been singing, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Because when you least expect it, your world is going to come to an end. We live in a world that does not honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a world where people want to honor themselves. There's a scene in the movie Gladiator where the main character, Maximus, who's played by the actor Russell Crowe, is, is surrounded by Roman soldiers in Rome's Colosseum. And in the movie, he has just fought this incredible giant, and he's defeated him, and he's survived lions, and he's survived tigers, and now the emperor comes out and he taunts Maximus, the emperor Commodus, and he describes in graphic, bitter detail the cruel and painful death of his beloved wife and the cruel and painful murder of his own child. And the emperor makes every effort to provoke the story's hero to strike the emperor so that he can cut him to pieces. And the hurt and the wounded soldier glances away from the emperor's gaze and he quietly and he confidently asserts the day for honoring yourself will soon be over. And the day for honoring itself This world's praise, this world's glory, this world's celebrity, the day for honoring itself will soon be over. The next time a person mocks you and ridicules you and mocks God and mocks Jesus and mocks your faith, here's what you say. You use it in the same way Jesus did. Brother, sister clock is ticking. Every sand that falls through the hourglass brings us closer and closer to the time where Jesus will be declared both Lord and King to the glory of God. My friend, the clock is ticking. And number two, the time for honoring yourself will soon be over. 
There is a time when this world's dark system will come to an end. There will come a time when this world and all of its works will be exposed for its wicked, sinful, evil, terminal circumstance. The world cannot survive apart from the grace and the mercy and the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Now may not be the time for Christ's full and complete revelation. There is a day, there is a day that's reserved in the future when human history will come to a close, when Jesus will return in great glory to judge the living and the dead, to rule and reign. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, the Lord says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and it shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Paul takes that very same scripture in Philippians and he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven above and and on earth below and all creatures below the earth. Every single being in the universe will one day come to that place of absolute submission. Voluntarily. Or involuntarily. If you do it voluntarily, He is your Savior. If you do it involuntarily, He is your judge. Jesus will be both Savior and judge on that great day. What is He to you? Is he your savior? Or is he your judge? Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray for our family and our friends. We pray for this world that mocks, ridicules, and otherwise sarcastically tries to intimidate us. But Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we could with strength an honor that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit, say, the day for honoring yourself will soon be over. And the day for honoring Jesus, I guarantee you, will come. Lord, we pray that we could give Him all the honor and all of the praise and all of the glory. Do Him now. In Jesus' name.